This morning we're finishing this series called Church uh, Everywhere. But one of the things I'm just thinking about is, uh, as a church, we're committed to this idea of giving away what we could keep for ourselves. Uh, And uh, I just talked about where I've been last week. I'm actually away again the next two weeks. Uh, And part of that is next Sunday, I'm speaking at a church camp in Sydney uh, for a mentor of mine. And it's a huge privilege to be asked by someone you look up to and have learned from to come and speak to his church community uh, about mission and neighborhood and evangelism. So I'm really excited about that. Please uh, pray for me. That's a stretch for me. I'm comfortable talking to my church family and find it really nerve-wracking going to speak to other people with different kind of worldviews and ideas. Um, So please pray for me in that. But please pray for the opportunity for us to um, multiply our mission here at Richmond into other churches uh, and to support and encourage them. It's really exciting church to be um, connecting with. Um, They're a church in King's Cross, uh, which means they've got a very mixed group of people that gather together. Um, You can imagine a little bit some of the kinds of people that might live in that space in a very wealthy area. Uh, now in Sydney, uh, but also the story and history of the King's Cross area in Sydney. Um, So please pray as I think about that, as we plan for that, and as I'm part of that. And then the next Sunday after that, um, Surrender Conference in Melbourne is happening, uh, and Sarah and I have an opportunity to be part of that. And so please pray as we continue to walk with the Surrender family and learn from them and engage with them as we look forward to Surrender Adelaide later this year. Um, Yeah, I would love your prayers over that time. This morning, though, we're taking our next steps, our last step in this Church Everywhere series. We've been unpacking the idea that we are people who carry our identity as followers of Jesus, who carry our identity as part of this church family into our everywhere. We've looked at what it means to be the village, where we all take responsibilities as aunties and uncles for the next generation in our church, how we live together and take responsibility for every generation in our church. We've considered what it means not just to count how many friends we might have, but to consider what it means to do friendship well. We've looked at what it means to be church everywhere in our vocations, in our workplaces. And we've looked at what it means to be church everywhere in our rest and play. And we were asked last week by Melinda, how how do we appreciate God's creation? How do we rest well? How do we do it well in community? I wonder if you got some rest this week if you were able to find room to play, if you were able to reshape your rhythms of rest and play to worship and wonder at the creativity and faithfulness of God. As we've explored this series, we've been challenged to raise our awareness, awareness in our work, rest and play, in our friendships in the village, our awareness of what the Father is doing in the people and places and the things that we do to raise our awareness of where King Jesus' kingdom is breaking in and bringing light and life, awareness of who and what and where we live out our identity and purpose and passions as Jesus' kingdom people, the collective together and scattered agents of change and resurrection in his name. There's still one more area of life that we want to ask these questions about. What does it mean to live out church everywhere in our neighbourhoods? What does it mean to identify both as citizens of a new and future kingdom as well as the here and now? Not just abstractly, not just with a view to the horizon, but the very real and confronting and conflicting and complex reality of life in our streets and neighborhoods today. There's one way to describe us as followers of Jesus is that we are citizens of two worlds. We're called to live in the world, in our city, but we're named as co-heirs of a future city, as co-designers of a new world. 
a now but not fully realized world. When we enter the kingdom of God, everything changes. Mix described that. This upside down for the positive new filter of life. We live with a new horizon, a future of peace and hope and justice. But we also live with the daily horizons of our here and now, of the reality of another day dawning, both the beauty and the mess of life in the day-to-day. And sometimes, I think oftentimes, it can be hard to see how we are meant to live, how we're meant to be church everywhere now. What does it mean for for us to live for Jesus in our choices, our vocations, our our morality, our families, our friendships, our neighbourhoods? This is confusing, isn't it? In a world of mixed and conflicting messages, messages of diverse and opposed moral filters, how, how as Jesus followers are we meant to be church everywhere in the mess and noise and chaos of the society in which we live? The passage that we've read this morning from Jeremiah wrestles with this reality. The Jews find themselves exiled in Babylon and they're wrestling with how to live, how to live as God's people. On their horizon, so the prophets tell them, is the promise of a new and free future. But in front of them is the reality of life in a confusing and complex society. The people of God are asking, how do we live as neighbors in confusing times? Familiar question? One response is to assimilate, to become like those around us, to use the city, the neighborhood, the society for our benefit, to leverage everything society has to secure our finances and friendships and futures. We see this out there, right? An every man for themselves kind of mentality. But if we're honest, I think we see it in ourselves too. A selfish pursuit of happiness that causes us to trample on others, to step over others, to work and save and hoard up for ourselves a financial security in the name of freedom. We can also see assimilation in our world, in society around us, as a form of oppression, a means to control and exclude by insisting that in order for people to flourish in a society, they must become like everyone else. Societies, dominating societies all over the world, in history too, have suggested that the people group needs to be intellectually, socially, culturally, and spiritually assimilated so that each person loses their ability to have their own distinctive understanding and interpretation of the world. And what we've seen in history, what we see even today, is that within a generation or two, cultural and spiritual differences are gone. This was the experience of God's people in Babylon. Babylon offered Israel wealth and freedom and and the pursuit of happiness, the life and experience of Babylonians, as long as the Israelites assimilated, became just like everyone around them. Another response, as we ask this question, how do we live in a complex and confusing society? And we see it in the story of Jeremiah, is to gather in tribes and work together for the benefit of our group. We see this today in politics and in lobbying groups, in corporations and sectors. It's not a new thing. But recently, we've seen an increasing pace of division and opposition as people group, as people group together across issues and ethics and socioeconomic classes and cultures. 
And we see in tribalism some of the same selfish postures as selfish assimilation. We see them emerge, but they're strengthened by mob mentality and supported by echo chambers. Places where we only hear and understand and read and listen to and watch things by people who think like us. That's an echo chamber. Continuing unchallenged, this kind of behavior that continues unchallenged, sees tribalism become generationally entrenched. Prejudice and exclusion becoming deeply embedded in the value systems of families and neighborhoods and cities and societies. We also have this thing called cognitive bias that builds up over time, something that makes it really hard for us to change our minds about anything, something that makes us even be suspicious of scientific research that's suggesting we ought to change our mind on anything. All these things together make it really hard for different groups to share places and spaces and have healthy and robust dialogue and difference. Cities and societies become increasingly hostile. Polarization and outrage become common markers. And at its worst, and we see this, violent opposition and forced exclusion begin to dominate the public space. You see this, right? You might describe it in other words. The people that you listen to might talk about it in other words. But we see it in neighborhoods and streets. We see it across society and culture. We see it across national boundaries and cultural boundaries. To all sorts of varying degrees, we see this kind of hostility in our cities today. And in God's, in, as God's people, we find ourselves wrestling with these two ideas. Do we assimilate? Or do we head into tribalism and separate, becoming our own holy huddles? We find ourselves either blending in, living as if untouched, unchanged by the resurrection of King Jesus. Or we find ourselves living out of defensive isolation and separation and tribalism. We end up, and I think we see this in ourselves sometimes, right? Forming these holy huddles, untouched by the sin pollution that we hypocritically judge in the world around us. Do you think I'm being unfair as I describe the way we think about life and the world and the groups within, we, within which we live? You can tell me after. What does it look like for God's people to live in the streets and homes and neighborhoods and cities and societies that are increasingly complex and hostile? God in Jeremiah says, well, it doesn't look like assimilation and it doesn't look like tribalism. It doesn't look like compromised sameness or hypocritical separation. God says in those verses through Jeremiah to the people who are listening, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. The people of God, as we read the story of their history in the Bible, had historically oscillated between this nationalistic and religious separatism and syncretism. They pulled themselves away from others, and they also became just like the others. You can see this cycle in their history. This call to maintain a healthy identity as God's people, but also a challenge to make a life in their new city upset that historical oscillation. 
God's people were wrestling with the Babylonians' desire for them to assimilate and their own desire to live in these separate societies in other neighborhoods in the city, across the train tracks or across the river. And God says, build homes, move in, go right into the city and settle down. Stay there a long time and raise your families and plant gardens. Increase in number, do not decrease, and seek the peace and prosperity of Babylon. This was incredibly confronting to the people of God at this time. The Babylonian leaders' hands were dripping with the blood of the Israelite relatives. The city was filled with idols, filled with false gods, and God has the audacity to say to his people, seek the peace and prosperity of the city. Pray to me for it, he says, for if it prospers, you prosper. It would have been confronting astounding for God to say to them, I want you, my children, to move into that city. And I I want you not just to engage the city in just enough so that your little tribe can survive and maybe even thrive a little bit. I want you to seek the prosperity and peace of the city. I want you to pray for the city, love it, root for it, cheer for it, not against it. Isn't that confronting? The people of God were to seek the well-being of a diverse, confusing, and often conflicted culture. Engage it, says Jeremiah. Don't escape it, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Now, the Hebrew word that's translated here, peace and prosperity, shalom, more fully means to seek the flourishing of the city. And it doesn't just mean one measure of the city or just to be a little bit better. It means the total flourishing of the city and its people, every neighborhood, in every dimension, socially, economically, physically, spiritually. This is a confronting challenge to God's people. It's a call to identify with the city and the neighborhoods in which the people of God find themselves. And as followers of Jesus in a post-Christian culture, we find ourselves in a confusing and often conflicted time. And our challenge is to work and pray for the wholesomeness, all of society within which our own well-being is linked. Now, this doesn't mean that we abandon the, the rhythms and spiritual life of our church family and become like everyone else around us or become only social service agencies or community development centers. We need to continue and develop and grow and reimagine maybe the healthy and vital rhythms of discipleship to nurture this distinctive, this upside-down way of life in Christ. But it does mean that we recommit ourselves, we challenge ourselves even, to working for the physical, moral, and spiritual welfare of the city and the neighborhoods and the neighbors that we live next to. It means that we see our neighborhood as a place where we can live out our Jesus-shaped passions and opportunities. It also means in a world of transience and movement, where we don't put down roots for very long anymore, where we're too busy in our work and play and travel to invest for the long term in the people and places that are around us, we're challenged to shift our filters to adjust our awareness and to see the people and the neighbourhoods as a place to invest in, as people to commit to. 
The people of God in Jeremiah were challenged to put down roots, to build interconnected relationships, and to work for the shalom, the peace, and the prosperity of the neighborhoods of Babylon. If we fast forward to Jesus' day, we see that God's people then were still wrestling with how to live in their world. They were not exiled in a far-off city, but they were under the dominating rule of the Roman Empire. And one day, this teacher of the law comes up to Jesus and asks him, what's the most important commandment? Now, teachers of the law were cultural and ethical and moral guides who helped God's people figure out how to live as his people. And this teacher of the law is trying to figure that out as well. How do I help my people live in this confusing time, Jesus? And Jesus says, at the heart of the laws of God are two things, love God and love your neighbor. Two things, Jesus says, live for God and his kingdom and love your neighbor. Love your neighbor, Jesus says. In other places, he makes sure that his people that are listening to him and us as his followers understand that this means all people, including our enemies, and especially the least, the last, and the lost. Now, just a generation later, we find a group of Roman Christians wrestling with a similar question. What does it mean to live as God's people in the time and place we find ourselves in? Living as God's people in Rome at that time, the religious, political, social, economical, and philosophical center of the world at the time, was an incredibly confusing and confronting space. The gospel we preach says that Jesus is king. This group of Christians were meeting in a house church just down the hill from Caesar, who declared that he was king. What a confusing and complex time. And Paul the Apostle writes to them in the letter of the Romans, and in chapter 13 says, submit to this society in which you live. Obey its leaders and pay its taxes. These are in the verses just before the ones that we read. In other words, he says, don't live as tribalistic separatists. Don't live separated from the city. Engage in the city. Live in it. Become one of its citizens. But live distinctly. Paul says. And echoing the words of Jesus, Paul writes, the laws of God, the ones that detail the heart and life of his people, they're summed up in this way, love your neighbor as yourself. Can you see that throughout the story of God's people, in all sorts of generations and situations, God's people have been wrestling with these questions of how to live in complex times. And God's answer consistently has been make homes build relationships, seek the peace and prosperity of the people who you live next door to. He says, live distinctly, live differently. In a world of selfish pursuits of happiness, love your neighbor as yourself. The contrasting and distinctive call of God's people, of followers of Jesus of us, is the call to live of, as agents of shalom for our neighbors not for ourselves first, but for God and our neighbors. Now, I think there is a way that we could read all of these passages as a call to the well-being of our society and nation, of our city at its broader sense, without hearing the challenge to think about and engage the people that we live next door to. And there is a place for us to engage well in public dialogue, to critique and challenge calls for assimilation and tribalism that are happening at cultural levels, at thought levels, at leadership levels across our societies and cultures. 
There is a call for us to speak up when cultural values are being moved towards the selfish goals of ambitious leaders and governments. There is a requirement for more thoughtful followers of Jesus to engage well in the public space. And maybe you, maybe we can figure out more of what we can do to be a city on a hill in our city, to be a voice for some of those things in our city, a collective, a shared voice of kingdom values in the noisy and messy public square. Of course we need to speak up into policy and moral and ethical and societal levels. We can seek the peace and prosperity of our city and nation, and we should. But I want us to zoom in. I want us to get to street level. I want us to get grounded in this. I want us to get to the streets and blocks and suburbs in which we live. I want us to grow our awareness of those that live and play and sleep and eat meters away from us. What does it mean to live for their prosperity, for their peace? Where are the places and who are the people that you can invest in? Where you can bring peace and build prosperity, where you can work for the total flourishing of your neighbours? Now, we could live assimilated lives, saying we are here for ourselves. We could also live as tribalists, saying we are here for our tribe. Followers of Jesus say we're not here for anything like that. We're not afraid of death. We don't need to be rich. We don't need to get ahead. We don't even need to live because to live in Christ is gain. We're here for you, followers of Jesus say. We're here for the peace of the city. We're here for the prosperity of the city. We're here for the total flourishing of our neighbours. We're here for others. We're operating not on the principle that our neighbours' lives are here, are lived for the benefit of ourselves, but on the gospel-shaped principle of my life for you. We're called to live cross-shaped, gospel-shaped love for our neighbours, one that says you don't need to be like me or be part of my group for me to love you, but one that says I will live for you in selfless service, open-handed generosity, I will give away what I could keep for myself so that you can have a flourishing life. I will generously share what I have with you. I will courageously share my worldview that King Jesus is making things right with you. I will invite you into my space and invite you into my life. I will make room for you. I will support you. I will listen to you. I will patiently work through difference with you. This is countercultural posture. Our posture as kingdom people in our streets is to be engaged and passionate neighbours, not indifferent and far off. Neighbours who tell a different story to the selfish exclusion from community that many people live with. Neighbours that build connection and restore relationship and offer friendship in neighbourhoods that are marked by far too many people in loneliness and isolation. The actions of kingdom people include generously sharing what we have to meet the needs of our neighbours. The actions include not watching indifferently as they suffer, but thoughtfully and practically walking alongside our neighbours. But for all of this to happen, 
We need to know our neighbours. What if I asked you this question? Who is your neighbour? How invested are you in the flourishing of the people who live in the houses and apartments and streets around you? In what ways are you part of the lives and community rhythms of your neighbourhood? What does it look like for you, for us, to be church everywhere in our neighbourhoods? I think it means shifting some of the filters and decision-making that we use to make choices in our lives, filtering our choices of where to live and where to keep living for the love of our neighbours. Because it takes a long time to connect and build neighbourhood connections and friendships. It takes a long time to build trust and reputation and meaningful long-term relationships with neighbours and neighbourhood organisations. You know this. Here at Richmond, we collectively have a shared passion and involvement in our neighbourhood. We've been experimenting with and practising ways that we can encourage and build connection in our community. We've been working to build trust with it and a reputation with our neighbourhood. We've been giving ourselves away collectively as we invest time and resources and energy and staff time in efforts to partner together with others in our neighbourhood for the good and flourishing of everyone who lives around here. Collectively, we share that passion. But this morning, I want to get to street level, to you and where you live. What does it look like to think about the people that live next door or above you or across the road from you, behind you? What does it mean to think about the third places in our neighbourhoods? By third places, I mean cafes and train stations, libraries, other places that you might engage with people who live within the streets around you. What would change for you if you raised your awareness of the hopes and dreams and flourishing of your neighbours? What would shift in the practices of your life for you to love and care your neighbours as they grieve and face problems and issues and complex situations? incredibly confronting Jesus. Ah, Jesus. Question. Do you even know your neighbours? It's challenging, right? To ask some of these questions. To ask what does it mean to be church everywhere where we live? To make choices about staying where we live and investing in the people around us and caring for the people around us and generously opening ourselves up to the people around us. One of the places we need to start is to think about getting to know our neighbours, to even understanding who lives around us. So we're going to do an exercise, and I've got some helpers. We're going to pass out everyone a piece of paper. We're going to do a little exercise. And a pen, if we've got the pens. Thanks, team. Now, thinking about neighbourhood and neighbours and how to love our neighbours, maybe think of a few people in our church family who do this really, really well. Uh, unfortunately, David and Glenda are away on a holiday in Asia. But if you want to learn how to love your neighbours over a really long time, go and spend some time with David and Glenda. 
Uh, Mick and Cammy have benefited. They live about five houses away from David and Glenda and haven't mowed a lawn since they've lived there because of David. They've benefited from his pastoral care, uh, checking in on them and walking with them. But David knows every person on his street. He doesn't just know their names. He knows what's going on in their lives. He's journeyed with them. He's taken them to the football. He's checked in on them. He's turned up at funerals. He's celebrated with them. You want to learn how to do neighborhood well? Hang out with someone like David and Glenda, who've loved well over many, many years. Go and chat to Pam. Talk to Pam about what it means to live in a mini neighborhood within a neighborhood. What it means to be aware of your neighbors, to know who they are, to care for them, to drive them places, to check in on them as they struggle with all sorts of challenges in life. You might like to chat to Rachel. Rachel was here before. I'm looking for Rachel. Beck. Where are you, Rachel? Maybe out the back. Yeah, chasing, chasing Ryan. Rachel's loving her neighborhood by... Hey, Rachel, we're just talking about you. <laughs> by, by starting an intergenerational playgroup in, in Regis, um, an aged living center. I'm not sure what the correct term is. A, a chance to love people in our community who are experiencing isolation and loneliness at incredible rates and levels. You could talk to Sarah, who intentionally walks the dog uh, around our neighborhood to meet people, to connect with people. She even walks the kids around, too, to connect with people. Who looks out for people, who met George and Vicky, who lived down the road, who've lived in the neighborhood 43 years, who all their kids live interstate, who don't have family connections anymore in Adelaide. People who had that for a long time and don't have it anymore. People who now supply us with all the seeds and offshoots for our veggie garden and the rest of our garden. But ask Sarah about what it means to be aware of what's happening in your community, what's happening in the neighbors' lives around you. Right, has everyone got a bit of paper and a pen? What I'm going to get you to do is draw a map of the houses or apartments that are immediately around you. So I'm not asking you, because there's a few of us that are directionally challenged, to draw a map of the streets in your suburb, but what you would consider your neighbours. So it might be the houses either side of you, across the road from you and behind you. It might be six or seven houses, something like that. Some of you live in apartment blocks, so it might be apartments on your level, it might be people that uh, stomp loudly above you or people that complain about your music below you, whatever it might be. Uh, what does it look like for you to describe, uh, to draw a map of those houses, people, dwellings around you? I'd offer to help you, but I don't live where you live, so I don't have much to say, except there's probably some houses across the road. You might want to do diagonally across the road, a couple of houses either side. Now, as you're drawing that, Start to write down what you know about those people. Names, hopes and dreams, fears and struggles, challenges. Now, I want to name some of the challenges in this exercise. So I understand that some neighbours don't want to be known, and they make it really hard for us to get to know them. Um, we'd love it to be different, but the reality is not everyone wants to engage with their neighbours. So I'm putting that out there. I also appreciate that we live in an incredibly transient time with a lot of people who are renting. Uh, so that can make it really difficult to get to know people as well. The place next door to us on our right is empty at the moment. So I don't know who to put in that space. Who knows how long the next people will be there. Some of the challenges might be that you're new in that space and you haven't had the chance to get to know people yet. Maybe this exercise is really confronting because of what you can't write down. 
about the people that live around you. I'd encourage you to sit in that challenge. I'm not going to make it easy on you. We need to be challenged by that. I want to encourage you, if you're able to write loads of things down, if you do have really deep and long-term connections with the people that live near you, that's amazing. If you're lowest, you probably know about them and their kids and their grandkids. <laughs> all right. I want you to add something else to your map. Now, it's not to scale, all right? So don't OCD and perfectionist. Don't freak out about this. I want you to think about one or two third places in your neighborhood. Uh, I briefly mentioned it before, this idea that there's spaces and places in our communities where people gather. It might be a coffee shop near Jules's house, who, who know her personally and very well. It might be a train station or a library or some other third place in your community that you're aware of, that you have some level of engagement with. It might be a public space, it might be a park. In that space, I want you to think about the kinds of people that you might encounter there. Now, like Jules, you might be able to name all of the staff and half of the other customers. Or you might be able to imagine the kinds, the types of people that would spend time there. Who you might find there, if you raised your awareness, if you kind of thought about it. What does it mean for us, for you, to be church everywhere with the people that live around there? What, what would be a next step for you as you think about the people in the houses around you and those third places to be light and bring life and be for their peace and prosperity? What would be some of the things you could say or do? On Wednesday night, we had some time together to think about two friends. We wrote down two names, uh, people that we would love to have a kingdom conversation with. And we thought about what it means to pray for them, what it could mean to take a next step with them. A really exciting exercise. I hope those of you that were there have had a chance to continue to pray for them, and to think about them, and maybe even to take those steps in the last few days. Just as we finish today, I would like you to write down what your next step might be. To approach and engage, build connection with one of your neighbours. To have a courageous conversation with some sort of act of loving generosity with a neighbour. I'm going to pray for us, and then I'm going to ask you if you'll talk to a couple of people around you about the challenges and the opportunities that have just come out of doing that little exercise together, what we've shared together today. I'm going to pray for us as we finish this Church Everywhere series. Let's pray. King Jesus, we prayed a prayer together, a shared prayer already today that expressed so much of our hopes for who we can be as church everywhere. As we finish this series now, I pray that the questions, the challenges, the confrontations, the unsettling, the awareness that has been raised uh, over these last few weeks, that your Holy Spirit might uh, keep speaking to us, keep challenging us, keep shaping us. We thank you that we've had time and space to imagine together again what it means to be church everywhere. Father, I want to pray for all the neighbours that we've just identified, the people who we can name and those we can't, uh, those people in those third spaces. 
I pray that we might have the opportunity to have a kingdom conversation with them. That in some way we might be able to share with them as a bold act of generous love or a courageous act of sharing faith or both. I pray that we might be able to be neighbours who love well, who live distinctly, who live generously and who proclaim your name courageously. Father, we're committed not just to be good neighbours as a collective, as a church, but good neighbours as your followers, as church everywhere. And so I pray for all of us as we commission each of us back into our homes and streets. I pray that even as we go home today, tomorrow our awareness might be heightened of who's there. Grow in us a love, an urgency, a passion to engage them well. And we pray that you will help us to make homes, build connections, and be for the good of our neighbours. We pray this all together in the name of Jesus. Amen.